Welcome to the LSI Behind the Wind podcast. I'm Lauren Lane. For 50 years, the LSI team has dedicated themselves to the science of business development. We've seen the impact of our work and how it's evolved into economic development and now social impact work. Three years ago, Amanda Covington joined the Larry H. Miller Company Special Projects team and has since become the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer. For nearly 30 years, Amanda has been working in corporate and government communications teams, solving huge issues from NASA contracts to Utah Jazz basketball player Rudy Gobert contracting COVID-19. She has definitely seen a thing or two in her time in crisis communications. In this episode, she and Sean discuss her career up to this point, her ambitious goal to end period poverty, and creating lasting positive change in the world and communities around us. Let's dive in. Amanda, thanks for joining me on this episode. Before we start talking business, why don't you talk about yourself and a little bit about your background and some of the things that you're doing right now? I would love to. Thanks. I, well, I have known you for quite a long time, which has been really fun through professional interactions, but we're both Davis County residents, which is awesome. I live in Kaysville, Utah. I've lived up there since 2008 with a brief stint in Washington, DC for three years. And then we came right back to the same area because we love it so much. I have two boys. One is 20. He'll be starting at the University of Utah this fall. And the other one will be a senior in high school at Farmington High. Been married um, to my college sweetheart for 23 years. We met at the University of Utah in the communications program. Television news broadcasting was the class that we were in. So that was the dream. I wanted to work for TV news and that has since evolved. But yeah, I'm a Utah resident, born, raised, educated here. I received both my degrees at the University of Utah. So I bleed red. And then I also have an affinity for Weber State University. I sit on their board of trustees and love their dual mission purpose. And with that, I have a lot of exposure to Davis Technical College as well and have just had a love for higher ed and what it does for our state and our students and our workforce. So as you said, we've known each other for a long time. I think going back to ATK and then VISTA and we worked together on the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences board at the University of Utah. And our paths have really crossed over the years through our work with higher ed and the community service. Uh, so was it your plan to go into communications? Is I mean, I've, I've always thought that at some point you were going to run for political <laughs> office. Was, was, that your, was that your initial plan? Yeah, actually, I had a scholarship to go study engineering in Florida. I loved math and science, but as I thought about it for a while, I just thought I'm too much of an extrovert and I love to use persuasion and narratives. And so uh, I went to the University of Utah thinking I might get a law degree one day, but thought I'd start in communications and ended up loving it. I love the story and I love connecting and convening. And I love being able to inform and and help people make decisions, change their mind, engage deeper on a topic. And so as I got into that and started an internship in both politics, I was a a Hinckley intern for Senator Hatch back in the 90s. Yeah, I was his press intern. So I got to work on the press side, which was fun. And then I was an intern for KSL. 
and I worked there as well and ended up being offered a job at both, but I picked KSL. It was the right time. I was still a junior when I was a Hinkley intern, so I still needed to finish school, but yeah, I got into TV news. I thought that's what I was going to do and wanted to be, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed writing quickly and the pressure to be accurate and to get the whole story. I loved breaking news. I loved visiting people in their homes, you know, with this news broadcast every night and thought that's what I would do forever. And then I had an incredible opportunity at the Utah Department of Transportation, which, you know, those of us on the news sides, PR was the other side. And so, but I had this great chance to come into Utah at a real pivotal time in government contracting and an intersection with community and public relations that hadn't really existed before. I mean, back before then, you know, people just had to deal with road construction. You didn't really know what was happening. You just saw a detour sign. And and as I joined UDOT with its incredible leadership team of Tom Warren and John Nord, they were working on I-15 reconstruction, the first design build project. It was prep for the 2002 Winter Olympics. Governor Levitt had a dream to build Legacy Parkway. And, you know, park and ride lots and traffic information systems where you got variable message boards, all of those things, plus working with businesses and residents to mitigate concern and make them part of the process. So I jumped in at just an incredible time and was able to take what I learned from TV news and apply it on the other side and really found a passion for that. And then how did you get into the private sector from Utah? Yeah. It it was such an interesting journey. Now I look back, I think, wow. And you were so young. Yeah, I was so young. I was, you know, early 20s at Utah. I was the director of communications. It was Olympics and legacy and big, heavy projects. But what I did have were bosses who were sponsors and believers. And so, you know, Tom retired, John took the helm and he took me with him to the governor's office. And um, so I had a lot of exposure to people like Governor Levitt, Lieutenant Governor Walker, Natalie Gochner, Lynn Ward, just really great people in the state. And as Levitt was leaving to go to the EPA, I got a call to come and work in the Lieutenant Governor's office to help Olin Walker transition, which led to being her deputy for communications. And so I did that for quite a while until the term ended with her and found myself over at higher ed. I got to work for the Board of Regents. It's now the Board of Higher Education And I was there doing policy work with Dave Bueller, Rich Kendall, I mean, great names in higher ed. And Lynn Ward was running my 529. I had had my second baby. I had him uh, six weeks before Governor Walker left office. So I took a week's maternity leave, wrapped him up and took him to the Capitol every day till she exited her term. And then I went part-time for a while, but I got to work in higher ed, which is where my love really started working on policy and scholarships and tuition and the regents. And then I got this call from ATK recruiter saying, we need a community, we need a director of communications. And I said, I know government, I don't know, you know, business and the private sector. And I really love what I'm doing. And I said, no, several times. And uh, they finally said, will you just please come and talk to us? And I, I said, seriously, I don't know anything about missiles and rockets and, you know, any of that. And they said, well, do you know how to tell stories and weave together messaging and I said, I do know how to do that. And so I joined and it was probably the hardest career transition I ever made. It was so different than anything I'd ever done and a different culture, right? It was a highly competitive culture, a lot of retired military. So hierarchical in some ways, 
you know, there was a process and there was a way you worked through the food chain. And I had a lot to learn. I was in government, so I didn't know what EPS and Kagers and, you know, I just didn't know all of those terms. So I learned on the job, but I, I was there for 10 years and loved it. I loved every minute of it. Was Holly Lamb still there when you were there? She was. So she, I got hired into the defense side. So this was the side that was managing government owned contractor operated, you know, facilities, making ammo. We were on that side, Holly was on this, the aerospace side. And so we were both in different spots. And then I, our, our president became the CEO of the entire portfolio. And so I went with him to the corporate office and worked out of DC. And so Holly was on our team as we managed space and aerospace and defense and all of those different areas of the business. So that's when you and I first met and I, maybe we worked a little bit in Governor Walker's administration and we were, that's when we were standing up the initial economic development program for the state under Governor Walker and then really put it together under Governor Huntsman. So we may have crossed paths when you were in the administration, but uh, really that's I think that that's when we first started working together is when you were at were at ATK. And then, of course, Holly came to work for us for a lot of years. And we, you know, Blake, uh, Larson. Blake mm-hmm. Larson, who thought the world of you. And then talk about your role in Vista, which was just amazing to see what you did there. It, I mean, not just with the role, but uh, in the transition as well. I just I thought that was amazing. Yeah, it was interesting. So I moved to DC to work out of Arlington at the corporate ATK office. And really after about two years thought, this is great. I think we'll stay in DC. This is where we love and our kids were adjusting well. And about two years in, I had a one-on-one with the CEO and was talking about different plans for my team. And he said, you know, I'm just going to read you in on something we just presented to the board. <laughs> We're going to do a merger with Orbital Sciences with the defense side of our business and spin off the sporting and outdoor products side of our business. We had been acquiring quite a few businesses on the sporting side. We had just finished uh, acquiring Bushnell Holdings, which was a $1 billion acquisition. And so I, I said, well, great. And he said, well, I'd, I'd like you to come on the sporting outdoor products side and, and move back with me to set that up. And I, I said, well, gosh, I, I don't know if I want to, I, I really like where I am and, and what we're doing, but it was a short conversation. And of course I wanted to work with him going forward and he was going to go with the sporting goods side. So and the outdoor product side. So first ever Morse trust transaction in 25 years in the aerospace and defense industry, incredible work with law firms like Cravath. You know, we were taking the train every week up to New York to work on the deal and the form 10 and really create a new business out of what had been a portfolio within an aerospace and defense company. And so it was an opportunity to name it, brand it, establish culture, vision, mission, start an internet, start an internet, come up with employee policies, like just really at a startup level and also like an IPO feeling. I mean, I got in February of 2015, I got to go help ring the bell on the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, that was a moment in time for me. We chose, we ended up choosing Utah to relocate the headquarters for Vista Outdoor. And that brought me home to my family. 
And it was incredible. And then we jumped into an acquisition mode that was fast. And I got a lot of experience buying, you know, working on the teams that were buying little companies to big companies, integration of businesses, cultures, communicating government affairs because of of a diverse portfolio that wasn't government contracting. It was, you know, one part of our business was, you know, on one side of Bears Ears and one part of our business had different feelings. And so I got to work on internal issues that maybe be polarizing and try to find consensus. So it's just a really great opportunity. And I also got assigned uh, financial communication. So I was in charge of the quarterly earnings, you know, working with the CFO and CEO to write those earnings releases and do those earnings calls. And so I got a huge look into the investor relations world. It was a great opportunity. And you were amazing. And right at the heart of this, this was one of the biggest mergers in aerospace and defense in, in the last 30 years. And I think it's, unfortunately, it's been overshadowed by the Northrop acquisition of of Orbital ATK. But when that was going on, we were, both companies were our clients, both ATK and Orbital were our clients and watching this come together and you orchestrating so much of this, Amanda, was incredible. And I was in DC quite a bit with Blake and some of the other leaders and it was incredible to watch this come together. It was amazing. Yeah, a lot of work. And then, you know, I don't know if you remember, but we were, we had announced the deal that it was would happen and we were in HSR review and, you know, going through all the process and then um, Orbital had a launch and, and we had some payload on that launch. And I remember driving home one night about six o'clock and it was at Wallops and it exploded on the launch pad. And I don't know if you remember that. And I remember going through then massive crisis communications, which for a communications professional, like you deal with crises all the time, but that for me, knowing like, okay, NASA is the client. We're working with NASA. We're merging with Orbital, who now is the prime on this contract. And then the next day investors, you know, ringing saying, what does this mean for the deal? And I mean, it was like every facet of a crisis communications plan you could go through. And I just remember that happening. And then that was in like November of 14. And we ended up closing in February of 15. But just so many things always happening because it's such a busy industry. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So then you moved back to Utah and took this role at the new newly stood up Vista. Talk about that. What a That was a great assignment. It was a great assignment. It was a great location. We were right there at Station Park in Farmington, built a new building, acquired even a Utah company, Camp Chef. So, I mean, the portfolio started to change from what was a very strong competitor in in, um, sporting ammunition. So we were the largest consumer product in the ammunition space, federal premium, CCI, Spear, Blazer, when you think about you know, uh, Alliant powder for reloading. And then we had all of these accessories through the Bushnell portfolio, game calls at Primos. And then we started to add on companies like Camp Chef. And we bought a paddleboard company called Jimmy Sticks and Camelback and Bell and Giro. And, you know, you started, I started to see the opportunities of what the diversity in a portfolio does in terms of, you know, your consumers, your customers, 
seasonality. It was just a great time. And I love outdoor recreation. I love to hike and golf and, you know, water ski and snow ski and all of it. And so for me, it was a a neat time to be outside because we got to take those products and try them and use them. So it was a marriage of, you know, work and play, which was a neat thing. So you did that for how many, how long? Not. Yeah. Three, it was about three and a half years. And then, you know, we had a, it was an interesting time when you look back people had sort of projected that Hillary Clinton would win the election and our customers like, you know, Walmart and Cabela's and whatever had really purchased a lot of inventory thinking we would have another Democrat as a president. And it's interesting when you get a pro-gun president, people feel a little bit more comfortable when you get a, a president that pushes for stricter gun laws, people tend to hoard and, and, and buy more. And so we were in the mode of thinking people would, would hoard ammo and then Trump wins. And so it kind of tipped that scale. And so you ended up with a lot of inventory in the market and it was saturated. And so things started to change a little bit. We ended up with new leadership at Vista and a lot of change. They have done an interesting job continuing to diversify their portfolio and uh, actually moved the our headquarters out of state. Right. I had already done that move left and come back. And for me, it was a good transition time to say, you know, I've got kids in high school. This isn't probably the right time to do that again. And however it may be, you know, Gail Miller and and the team here at Larry H. Miller said, come and come and stay here and work for us. And it was one of the very best decisions I've ever made. Absolutely. And I love what you're doing with Gail and, and the organization. So talk about some of the things that you're doing, it it's amazing transitioning from this aerospace and defense company to really a philanthropic mindset. Was that a difficult change in your in the way you were thinking and your approach overall? Oh, it was such a welcome transition. So our mission at the Larry Miller Company is to enrich lives. And I love that because it's very value-centered. There are four values here, and every employee can tell you that it's integrity, stewardship, hard work, and service. And it's lived every single day. So I came to, one, a privately held company after being at a publicly traded company for a decade, right? And it's just a different, it's a different pace in terms of Wall Street and, and your investors, where our shareholders were the family. And the vision was very long-term and stable in terms of the investments back in the the community. And so to come to an organization that had, you know, the Utah Jazz and Megaplex Theaters and the Salt Lake Bees and auto dealerships and a financial arm called PFS and some real estate work was so exciting. And then in the last three plus years, I've gotten to work on the transformation of the Larry Miller Company. We sold the Utah Jazz. We sold 65 plus dealerships. We've acquired a healthcare company out of Farmington, Utah with 22 skilled nursing facilities in the United States. And we have doubled down and invested in real estate, Daybreak Community, as well as some other incredible places around the West. And so I love transition and transformation and creating the narrative and connecting people to to the goal and the mission. And I got to do all of those things which was fascinating. And, you know, think about the experience. So I told you about the rocket launch 
when COVID hit and Rudy Gobert was basically patient zero, I mean, that was a crisis communications situation. And we were the focal point of the world, the professional sports world, at least. And Utah was then like, here we go. I mean, everything that day on March 11th changed. And it was awesome to be in the room and to be working to communicate with the situation unfolding in Oklahoma City. But then what's next? And what does it mean for Utah? And to have connections to higher ed and to state government and to help our organization connect with those people that were making policy and understand it. I just, at that moment in time, I thought all of the things you've done, Amanda, over your career are culminating right now. And this is where you're meant to be. And I looked at that as not only the hardest time, but one of the best times of my career. So much of your work now is is philanthropic. And I know you're really focused on women's issues and creating leadership in organizations focused on women. Could you talk about some of the the things that you're doing? Because I just, I think it's amazing how, like I said, you transition into this new, just gracefully into this new role. And I don't think a lot of people could do that. Thank you. Well, it feels like home here. We have an incredibly inclusive and welcome culture where you're valued, you not only feel like you're adding value, but you feel like you're appreciated for the value you bring. And, and I love that. There are so many long tenured people here because we invest in people. And I love that. And, and Gail and her family have long been doing philanthropic work. They have invested in this community for over 40 years. But it, interestingly, when the jazz and the auto dealerships were sold, one of the roles with those proceeds was to invest in the corpus of the family foundation. So if you kind of look at it in thirds, right, and not equally said, but in three pieces, a set of those dollars went into philanthropy. Another piece went into, you know, building up our own business and acquiring. And then another set of those proceeds went to investments and doing more things through private equity and venture capital and and whatnot. So, you know, that's really fun for me. But the the piece about getting more into philanthropy has been exciting. We have a new managing director of philanthropy. He and I work very carefully together on how we work with our constituents and our partners and the ability to lift communities and to make a change in people's lives is like you want a front row seat at that. And I feel like I have it. This last year, through working with the family and the foundation, we worked on period poverty, which was really fun. A lot of pre-work had happened with the policy project leading up to that time. And Kristen Andrews getting involved saying, I mean, I don't know if you know the story, but she went to a, a junior high school to say like, hey, we want to do a food drive and, and help out. And the, they, they said, Wait, can we be honest? Like we need tampons and pads. We don't like, we need that more than we need food, canned food. And so that really started this work and work with the legislature to really show, and I think this is in your work a lot, public-private partnership, where could we get a state appropriation or a line item that really funded feminine products like you would hand soap or toilet paper for a restroom and to help legislators and decision makers see that's what that is and that it is an equity issue when girls are menstruating and they miss school for a set amount of days because they don't have access to product, that ends up being like almost two months of the year that they're not in school. 
And when they are, when they have food insecurity and other financial challenges at home, the last thing they ask mom and dad to buy are hygiene products. And so we found that there was a gap with the dispensers, what would actually hang on the wall to dispense the products. And Kristen Andrus came in one day, she, we were meeting on something totally different about a philanthropic partnership. And she mentioned this and we said, this is something we can get behind. And so Gail and the family committed a million dollars to buy dispensers. And Kristen said, Jeremy and I and our family foundation will match that. So we took $2 million to the legislature to say, we'll buy the dispensers if you guys can work with the school, state school board and, and the budget to procure the product. And um, so those are rolling out. They started in a Murray School District and we'll keep rolling them as they go um, so that every school K through 12 has access in those restrooms for those products. It's It was really great to talk to the legislators and they would say, well, we have wives and we have daughters and we have sisters. And this is something like it's 2022 and what has taken us so long. And I loved the advocacy part of that because Kristen and Emily Bell McCormick and others really married Catherine Perry really brought young women to the table to say, this is really how you make change. It's not, it wasn't crazy or angry or confrontational. It was collaborative and helped these young women learn how to use their voices and talk to legislators and work with school officials. So I think what's actually been planted is a seed for change that our youth now have a model of how to go about making change when they see a need. And that even more than having period products in schools is the reward. I think I mentioned this story to you, but if I haven't, uh, I think you're going to find this interesting. We were talking about our sons before we started. And as my son graduated from high school last year, one of the things he said to me was, he said, I want to go do a, a trip with you. And so just he and I went to Kenya last year and spent two weeks in the Serengeti, and but also spent quite a bit of time in Nairobi. And one of the things that we did while we were there was we went to an organization that was doing this exact thing for these middle school and high school and even college age women in Nairobi. And they, they said the same, I mean, we were just, I, w- I was just shocked by this because they were, were saying, you know, the, these gals are embarrassed to talk about it and they'll just miss school and then they're so far behind and it perpetuates this cycle of intergenerational poverty. And th- they said, this is gonna fix this. So I. I mean, I, I thought it was just, this was an amazing thing. And, and I was thinking, oh, okay, Nairobi. But then we've got this challenge here in the U.S. and right locally as well. And I've really admired what, with you taking the lead on this, it's one of those barriers to that has kept women and families for generations in in poverty and that you see this as a root cause and in a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say simple way, but a very tactical way to end, uh, help in poverty, to increase education and mobility of uh, these young women. And I just, I really applaud it. Well, thank you. Yeah. We, we learned a lot about globally what a challenge it is, even culturally, right? Women being sent away 
because it's, you know, it's shunned or looked down upon. And I think, you know, we're half of the population and um, it's a naturally occurring thing every month for most women. And when we want to be equitable, these are things we can start to touch. And I, I just give a shout out to the state legislature for their support through that. And Sid Dixon, you know, superintendent, amazing partner and advocate. And it all started with a custodian at a middle school who said, Hey, like I'm seeing this every day, let's make a change. And so we hope to take that model. I'll give you a second example, which is um, teen centers in Utah schools. So the Davis Education Foundation led by Jody Lunt identified up at Clearfield High that we have like 1600 homeless youth in Davis County and they are couch surfing. Uh, We've heard a story of one that lived at the Lagoon campground until it snowed, you know, house to house living in their cars, but they, they want and need to go to school. And so one of the you know, they started this homeless teen center at Clearfield High, which is incredible. If you haven't been, you should you should yeah. go. With and it, it gives these students a place to use the internet and study and do their laundry and take a shower and grab something to eat and, and apply for college and have some advice. And so Gail uh, and the family partnered with the Huntsman's to collectively give a million dollars towards supporting additional expansion of these centers. And then with partnership from Speaker Wilson and President Adams, and the legislature, you know, um, and Steve Ellison, Representative Ellison, now that ability to put those in the high schools throughout the state where students have access and an equity to complete their high school degree and find the resources to go to college. There are so many federal resources for homeless youth to be able to get into, you know, college or DTC or or wherever they want to go and, and to be able to have access and information. So again, another way that philanthropy and state dollars and public leaders come together and create those partnerships to really elevate our communities is so important. And I hope we see more of that. I One, one thing I love about our foundation and the family is they want to invite people to join. Like, let's, let's do it together. Come and let's invite everybody to be part of these solutions. And I love that collective thinking. This is one of the reasons I, I wanted to have this discussion with you because oftentimes states and municipalities, and we're guilty of this as well, our teams are thinking about, we need to build these complex strategies and we need to be focused on, you know, all of this really building ecosystems, which is tough and and it takes time. And it's oftentimes it's some of the most simple solutions that can have lasting impact in, in your work. And this is a perfect example of that, that you identified this need and brought all of the elements together to make this happen. And I encourage people to, when you think, oh, you know, it's going to require all of this immense foundation and work and appropriation and policy. And I mean, those are the kinds of large ecosystem strategies that our team is doing every day in in trying to create impact, trying to create lasting economic prosperity. And and oftentimes it's it's something simple like this that can really change the lives of thousands of people and and put them on a trajectory of of long-term prosperity. Yeah. Enriching lives. 
What do you see as what's your vision for the next decade? I mean, this is exciting work that you're doing and I think you've got this great opportunity to facilitate lasting change in, in this organization. What are some of your projects and things that you'd like to see achieved over the next 10 years? Yeah, I love it. Well, I can tell you in the last three, so much has changed. I love working for an organization that's very foundational, based on culture, consistent, but so innovative. It's a neat mix, right? Because what's what's at the core doesn't change, which keeps everybody grounded. But there's so much freedom up here to move and ideate um, and explore things and permission to make mistakes and learn together. And I think that's what we saw as the jazz transaction and the auto transaction and these new acquisitions. So I'm excited to see as the market and industries change and as we see some of the growth challenges that the state's facing, we love to be part of the solution and the vision. I'll give you an example, which this is something I'm loving working on. We bought Daybreak. There's 1,300 undeveloped acres, but it's not just Daybreak. When you look at the Southwest quadrant of Salt Lake County, it is like one of the fastest growing areas in our state. There are so many young families and a lot of homes going up, but we have a once in a generational opportunity to work together as developers, as the city, large landowners like Rio Tinto, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a lot of land there the county mayor, the state of Utah, how are we looking at a region and planning so that we create something that my grandchildren and great-grandchildren look back and they say, wow, those, those planners had a lot of foresight. We have issues with air quality. We have trans- transportation infrastructure, education challenges with all of these kids, water. I mean, think about all of the things that are pressing on us. And so we have created the Southwest Vision Coalition where we start to say, okay, there's a big development happening in Draper. There's daybreak with the busiest transit station. How do we work with Wasatch Front Regional Council and UTA and UDOT to connect those two via transit? What's the next phase of Mountain View Corridor? How do we talk with places like University of Utah and Salt Lake Community College to really integrate higher ed and and learning in with the school system? How do we work with Jordan School District as we look at buildings and and educating these numbers of kids and shared spaces with parks and rec and fields. And for me, that's so awesome because we get to work on policy and we get to work on philanthropic giving and community building and stakeholder engagement, all of those pieces of the wheel coming together. I mean, I can see that for the next decade at least, which is going to be really fun. And then, you know, this investment in philanthropy that the families made is really like, it's big. I mean, it's $750 million corpus. Like that's a business unto itself. If you look at managing the strategy and the process and where that money makes the most impact and partnerships. So I look forward to rolling my sleeves up and just getting really busy in all of those areas. So great. Well, we'd we'd love to partner with you on some of these initiatives. As you know, we're entrenched in the... Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, IIJA, there's $1.6 trillion for infrastructure, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, for job creation around disenfranchised communities. I mean, it's really a lot of the things that 
you're focused on that you've talked about today. And we'd love to continue to work with you, Amanda, on some of these initiatives. I just, I'm so impressed with what you've already achieved and uh, you're just, you're just starting, it sounds like, <laughs> I, I think, in a lot of ways. So, yeah, we'd love it. We'd love to keep talking and learning and finding ways. Partnership is so key. It is, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this and talking about the work that you have working for Gail Miller and uh, the Larry H. Miller companies. It's, it's just incredible what you've achieved. And like I said, you're just you're just starting. You've got a lot, a lot of runway ahead of you. Thank you. It's been a wonderful journey so far and appreciate my opportunities to work with you over the years. It's just a great friendship as well as a lot of respect for what you and LSI do. And um, so yeah, let's continue the conversation. Go Utes. Yeah, go Utes and go Weaver. Go Wildcats. Go Wildcats. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Welcome. It's good to see you. Okay. Good to see you. Take care.